0: You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, if you would turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts, and we're looking together at chapter 24... You will find this on page 934 of the Pew Bible. This morning, we're considering verses 24 through 27. However, because of the weakness of your pastor, we skipped 22 and 23 last week. So we're going to read 22 through 27. That's Acts 24. Verses 22 through 27. Hear the word of God. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Well, the apostle Paul, as we've seen, had been told more than once that he would be a witness for Jesus Christ. Before the great and the small alike, he would testify to the Lord. You remember on the road to Damascus how Jesus called him to be a chosen instrument. And thus, Paul had the privilege of carrying the name before Jews and Gentiles and councils and kings. Prior to standing before the governor Felix, he had been encouraged by the Lord Back in verse 11, the Lord said to him, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. And as that plan developed, Paul soon found himself before the governor. It was one step closer to Rome and an opportunity to honor the name of Christ. And of course, the Apostle Paul had been widely known as the rising star of Judaism. But now among the Jews, he was notorious as an apostate who converted to Christianity. And the abruptness of his conversion was as striking as his newfound allegiance because the very faith that he had been trying to destroy was what he now defended. After hearing the rumors, Felix, you can imagine, had this infamous Christian in his custody. The governor was eager and ready to make the most of the opportunity. Somehow, Felix already had a rather accurate knowledge of the way. How accurate, how extensive was his knowledge, we are not told. But now he had access to one of the primary sources, to an apostle. So he and his wife, Drusilla, who herself was a Jewess, Listen to Paul preach. And this woman, history tells us, was Herod Agrippa's daughter, not quite 20 years old. She had been married to the king of Amesa, but she left him to marry Felix. She was Felix's third wife who bore him a son named Agrippa. Tragically, this particular son ultimately died in the eruption of Mount Vesuvius, So Felix and Drusilla, very seasoned in sin, listened to Paul expound the Christian faith. It says he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. These were his themes. But of course, you and I both know that he went into far greater detail because as Luke tells us, they heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. So this was not some abstract, theoretical lecture on religious topics. It was no doubt a pointed and practical exposition of the gospel. Surely Paul was laying out some far-reaching and ethical implications you can imagine. And Felix and Drusilla heard God's word explained and applied to their lives. I doubt they'd ever heard such practical, pointed, and personal application. And we should consider the three main themes that are contained in Luke's summary. Paul spoke, first of all, of righteousness or the standard of God's final reckoning. This must have included some degree of exposition of the moral law. Then he referred to self-control Felix and Drusilla were no paragons of self-control, to be sure. How relevant this was to these two adulterers! Can you imagine the celebrity gossip that had been spreading through Palestine regarding their marriages, just like the Inquirer, right? And then he stressed the coming judgment of all people, both great and small. And it's of this final judgment that the human conscience is equipped to emphasize. It's coming. And so it should be no surprise to you and I that Felix was alarmed. He was terrified. Visibly scared, violently shaken, he would listen to Paul no further. So he says, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I'll summon you. And isn't that typical and tragic? Basically, when I find the time, I'll send for you. And like so many, Felix had just made the biggest mistake of his entire life. Remember Pharaoh, who suffered under the judgments of God, and yet at one point he said that he wished to spend one more night with the frogs? Like the Egyptian king, Felix was comfortable in his sinful lifestyle, so he delayed response. His conscience had been pricked, he was frightened by the terrors of judgment. The gospel seemed to be having an effect. The Spirit was convicting him. And at the critical moment, as he, as he was, as it were, in the valley of decision, Felix and his wife turned away. How near the kingdom had drawn in Paul's sermon, and they rejected it like the Jews, Felix and Drusilla therefore judged themselves unworthy of eternal life. Tragic. They committed the all too common and almost always fatal error of delaying a response to the free and gracious offer of the gospel. When I find time, I'll send for you. And it seems like he failed to sense anything have any sense of urgency about the situation. And I think the text provides us with a fascinating glimpse into the personal psyche of Felix the governor. Perhaps more importantly, it's a case study at, of conscience at work. Conscience. You have one. I have one. Felix had one. This is how an unregenerate sinner reacts to the outward call of the gospel. Everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light. As Felix was confronted with the realities of sin and the coming judgment, he was terrified. As he sat under the ministry of God's word, his unbelieving soul was tormented. And this would be a good thing if it led to salvation, but so often it doesn't. And I want us to notice three things in particular about Felix's reaction. First, notice it shows how his conscience was pricking him severely. He was confronted with the commands and the prohibitions of the moral law. It was a solemn and sobering reminder of his accountability to God. The thoughts of that final reckoning made him tremble with fear, as it should. That's how the moral law is of use to unbelievers. It awakens their conscience and it drives them to flee to Christ. Or if they continue in sin, it leaves them inexcusable and under the curse. So his conscience was pricking pricking him severely, but second, his greed was ruling him excessively. Notice what it says. He hoped that money would be given him by Paul. Paul. For some reason, he thought that Paul might give him a kickback. I don't know. Perhaps he thought that Paul had some personal fortune. After all, being privately tutored by Gamaliel could not have been cheap. His family was in the upper crust. He comes from a wealthy family. Whatever the reason, though, Felix believed that Paul was in a position to pay him handsomely, so his greed was ruling him. And then third, it shows that his political ambition was driving him steadily. He wanted to advance. And any kind of promotion meant that he had to maintain the peace. So he had to keep these zealous Jews under control. And yet to police, their every movement would be costly and time-consuming. So giving them a bone, he kept Paul in prison. His conscience was pricking him severely. His greed was ruling him excessively. His ambition was driving him steadily. We find the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. And all three of these came into play as the offer of the gospel was tendered. Would he bend the knee to Christ or stiffen his neck against the Lord? Pilate's conscience was pricked, as we said, but that alone is never a sure sign of salvation. Never. I've known people, and perhaps you have too, who've experienced deep conviction, and they've never come to the Lord. There are what theologians call the common operations of the Spirit. Common operations of the Spirit. These are things that the Spirit does in both believers and unbelievers alike. For example, we're told that he convicts the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. Sound familiar? This kind of conviction is something that every human being can sense. Felix was convicted. He was stirred. He was awakened by the fearful expectation of judgment. However, at the critical moment... He was unwilling to trust in Jesus Christ. He passed on salvation. His indecision was in effect a rejection. And it seems to me that his greed and his ambition prevailed over the conviction that he felt. That is to say, his love of this world quenched the Spirit's influence. Not that anybody can thwart the Holy Spirit when he comes in power to save, But here, Felix's worldliness was a barrier that he couldn't overcome. It kept him from making a decision. And I think it's a valuable lesson for all of us, because when the Spirit moves, we're not to quench him. If he stirs your conscience, it's a very dangerous thing to resist his power. I like what Thomas Manton says in this regard. No iron is so hard as that which has been often heated and often quenched. So no heart is so hard as that which has outworn these convictions. Is it not why Paul himself warns against quenching the spirit? When the Lord knocks at the door of the conscience, it's almost always fatal to resist. When he stirs those waters of the soul, the response time is of the essence. There are seasons in which God draws more near to the soul than in others. I hope you know that. Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. And he often knocks by the influence of his spirit who awakens the conscience. He comes to the door of the heart He draws near in the ministry of the word. And when he finds that door shut, which is natural for sinners, he doesn't immediately withdraw. He waits to be gracious. He uses ordinary means. And he says that he'll sup with those who open up. And I think it's tragic what sinners forfeit by refusing to open the door of the heart to Christ. Absolutely tragic. So whether it's a call to conversion or to duty, it should be obeyed without delay. You know something, if a mere human being gives you a command, you can have reason to delay. He's he's a fellow sinner. But when God issues a command, it's rebellion to hesitate for a moment. When the king summons a subject, the subject must instantly obey or be guilty of treason. As the example of Felix illustrates, when conscience speaks, we must respond. And the pangs of conscience are the voice of God applying his law to the soul. As Paul says, their conscience bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. It's the lamp of the Lord within your heart that speaks in the name of God. And from that judgment that's made by conscience, your conscience renders a judgment, right? From that judgment made by conscience, there is absolutely no appeal. It either accuses you or excuses you. Says you've done something right or done something wrong. It either convicts or it converts. It is God's voice, and the sentence that your conscience passes will be confirmed, whether that be acquittal or condemnation. At the final day, its judgment will be ratified once and for all by God himself. For now, it simply speaks within the soul, its work being hidden from view. And yet, despite the sinner's best efforts, and there are a lot of efforts to squelch conscience, Despite the sinner's best efforts, there is no escape from a guilty conscience. When its accusation stings, no one on earth can endure the torment of a guilty conscience. Consider Judas Iscariot, perhaps one of the best examples. After he betrayed the master, his conscience plagued him. He felt regret, remorse, guilt, and a fearful expectation of final judgment. And it appeared for a moment as if he might really turn and truly repent. He tried to make restitution, do you remember, in bringing back the 30 pieces of silver? He even confessed I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. But Judas wasn't converted. He was still unregenerate, and he died in his sins. So burdened was his conscience that he ended up taking his own life. Solomon says, a man's spirit will endure sickness, but a crushed spirit, who can bear? Judas couldn't bear it. Felix couldn't bear it. Neither you nor I can bear it. No one can bear the accusations of a conscience that's guilty, and God uses that for good. It's one of the tools that God utilizes in awakening sinners and driving them to Christ. The terrors of conscience give a forewarning of approaching judgment, and I dare say you can muster a thousand witnesses that could not prove your guilt more clearly or more forcefully than your own conscience. Anyone who has experienced a troubled conscience, like me, you know what I'm talking about. And perhaps someone here has been laboring under a guilty conscience. If so, you will find relief only by confessing your sin to Christ and asking Him to forgive you. And He will. His precious blood is so potent it can cover and cleanse the worst of sins. I don't care what it is. We're told that there is no sin so small that it cannot send a person to hell. At the same time, there is no sin so big that it cannot be forgiven by Christ. And he offers a free and a full pardon and acceptance right now if we ask him. As we said earlier, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What a wonderful promise. So let's avoid unnecessary delays in obeying God's commands or responding to His offer. The moral law, as you probably know, is binding upon all mankind, all of its commands, all of its prohibitions. So, as to require the utmost perfection of every duty and to forbid the least degree of every sin. Now, this is the dilemma, isn't it? God requires obedience, sinners are prone to disobey. It's tragic. From the moment Adam took that fruit, man has been depraved. And yet, the Bible teaches that whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. It states that the Holy Spirit is given to those who obey God. It says that every thought must be taken captive to the obedience of Christ. And it says Jesus will return to punish those who know not God and obey not the gospel. So, obedience is our duty. We must not hesitate, and yet we're not naturally inclined to do so. That's a dilemma. And I think here is proof of our dependence on Christ's active obedience for salvation. Thank God for the active obedience of Christ. He fulfilled all righteousness. He obeyed every command. He never crossed a prohibition. And for love of souls, God imputes his righteousness, his act of obedience to believers. And therefore, we're clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Is this not good reason to accept the terms of salvation when they're offered? We're told whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. They're the terms. Those are the terms. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. You know something, we don't know when the gospel offer will be withdrawn or the door of salvation closed. Apparently, Felix heard Paul many times after being convicted that first time. As far as we know, the Spirit never again convicted him, God gave him over to his desires. Time and again, Felix heard the word preached, and yet the spirit withheld his influence. So in his case, the season of grace passed. The door of salvation closed. There was no hope. Hebrews 12, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. When a sinner rejects the offer, his guilt is greater than those who never heard it. And therefore, the sinner's punishment will be more than tolerable and his ruin utterly unavoidable. Isn't this what Jesus implies when he said this? Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, It will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. Now, if you trust him already, rejoice and give thanks. Reaffirm your faith today. If you have not, then by all means, do not delay. This may be your last chance We're told there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. I recently overheard a conversation between two ladies discussing adoption. I wasn't trying to eavesdrop, but it happened right in front of me. I couldn't help but hear what they were saying. And the older woman asked the middle-aged woman how the process of adoption was going. And the younger woman said, fine, she already had six children. This was going to be her seventh. And she was eager to welcome this child into her home. The older woman, with a smile, looked at her and she said glowingly, you are going to have a free pass to heaven. And the younger woman looked back at her with an equally benevolent smile and she says, well, I hope motherhood counts for something. Now, adoption is a wonderful thing. It helps illustrate for us the love of God. She was investing her life well in doing so, but both women had a terribly distorted and heretical view of salvation. They believed that entrance into heaven somehow is based on what we do in this life on this earth. You know, if our good deeds outweigh our bad deeds, we'll get in. But nothing you and I do is perfect. As we said in Sunday school, everything we do is defective and defiled. And by nature, we don't even want to do any good or obey the moral law. That's why it's so hard. That's why we pray "Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. We don't want to do it. Besides, when we've done all the good we can, we've done our duty. Jesus says, when you've done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We've only done what was our duty. God created us. We belong to him. He has the right to all of our service. And when we've rendered all of it, we've done nothing extraordinary. We've done nothing to deserve special praise or commendation. Even at our best, we've done no more than we ought to have done. How can that possibly earn salvation? Even if you and I obeyed perfectly from this moment forward, it would do no good. Because we're all born into a state of demerit. We come into this world guilty. So what good are virtuous deeds when we're laden with the debt of sin? (laughs) I hope motherhood counts for something. You can do all the good deeds you want and they cannot make up for the bad. We need a savior to fulfill the requirements of the law and to satisfy the demands of justice. So the gospel invitation goes out and if the spirit moves, the sinner must respond. And by faith in Jesus Christ and by nothing else, the believer is delivered from his guilt. So let's learn from Felix and Drusilla to delay a response may forfeit salvation. As I said, we don't know how many more times Felix listened to Paul. All we know is that Luke says he sent for him often and conversed with him. And as far as we do know, the Spirit never awakened his conscience again. As the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Friends, if God calls and says today, it is a sin for us to say tomorrow. If God calls you to repentance today, it is a sin to spend one more night with the frogs. If God offers terms to you today, it is a sin for you to say, When I find time. God's people are made willing and offer themselves freely when? On the day of his power. When God called Noah, he did all that God commanded him in Genesis 6. When Abram was commanded to sacrifice his only son, he rose early and saddled the donkey and took his son. No hint of delay. No tinge of hesitation. The response was immediate. When Josiah first heard the law read, he tore his clothes, sought the Lord, and got to work in the Reformation. Whether it's to conversion or repentance or to duty, if God calls, we respond. And so the offers of grace and salvation are made for today, and it may be our last. How many times have you heard this? Man knows not his time. Who knows? Your life, young people, your life might be required tonight. How many people do you think have died in the last 24 hours? 24 hours. It's estimated that 333,000 people have died in the last 24 hours. That's 13,860 per hour. That's 231 people per minute. That's just about four souls a second. Souls cascading into eternity. And I'm convinced that there are many people in hell who perished because of delays. There's no good reason to delay. It only increases the difficulty of conversion because sin roots itself more deeply. Bad habits are strengthened and the heart is hardened. And when that happens, repentance becomes ever more difficult and painful. By contrast, a ready response brings salvation and in its wake, deep joy. Oh, the wonders of God's love and giving his son to die for us on a cross. What inexpressible joy is produced within those who trust in him. Even if we're poor and unknown and deemed irrelevant by the world, There's glory in heaven. It's no trivial matter to be made heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. So let me ask you, what worldly privilege or position would you not forfeit to inherit glory? We can despise the shame and we can endure the cross if glory is set before us. What did Paul say? I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not even worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed to us. So I would conclude and say that there never was a person who responded to the gospel offer too soon, ever. There may have been many people who responded to the offer too late. You remember those foolish virgins who delayed getting the oil for their lamps? When finally they went, it was too late. The bridegroom came and they were shut out. Not so the wise virgins. They responded without delay and they joined the great wedding feast. You know, studies have shown that most converts, now these are human psychological studies, I have to be honest, but studies have shown that most converts are made early in life by the age of 18. While a relatively small remnant are made converts later in life. By the age of 18. When the heart is stirred and the conscience is convicted, don't quench it. Respond. Don't say like Phelis when I find the time. For the time may never come. May God enable all of us to respond without delay and with sincere hearts. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are sobered by the example of Felix and his wife. We understand that by nature we are just like them, prone to disobey and to delay. And yet for reasons known only to you, You have called us, you've given us exposure to the terms of salvation, and in so many cases here, you've enabled us to embrace them. We thank you for that and praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.